So our scripture today comes from 2 Samuel chapter 17. As my family gets older or as uh, my family grows and ex- well, maybe when I just look at my extended family, I don't know if you are anything like me, but do you ever look at your family, maybe your immediate family, maybe it's your extended family and think, I don't know if there's anyone more dysfunctional. <laughs> if you ever feel that way about your family, about whether it's your current family or your, again, your in-laws often fall into that category or your, your siblings now that they're all adults or grown or how you interact with each other. If you ever feel that way, uh, you, you really, you haven't read the Old Testament in a long time. Uh, the Old Testament seems to be a collection of stories about dysfunctional families. Whether it's Abraham and his wife Sarah, about whom he lies twice and claims she's his sister, ill, uh, or his son Isaac and his wife, who had two sons and they had favorites, or their son, Jacob, and his not one, not two, but four wives and their 12 sons and one daughter and just the dysfunction that erupted in that household. You know, we can even, that's just, we haven't even gotten out of Genesis yet. Uh, then you kind of move forward even into First and Second Samuel where we have been and Eli has two sons who are the high priests and they're wicked sons. Uh, They're wicked priests. And then we come to David, the man after God's own heart, who who nevertheless had a pretty, let's admit it, a pretty dysfunctional family. And we realize as we look at the Old Testament that the, the overwhelming reality when you read the Old Testament is that uh, all of us are sinners in desperate need of salvation and redemption, in desperate need of cleansing, in desperate need of God's grace. You know, David, we are right now in the middle, feels like we have been here forever, in the middle of this uh, coup that David's oldest son is, uh, is throwing, and he's only David's oldest son because he murdered his older brother after his older brother raped his sister. Uh, David is, has been sort of ousted from Jerusalem. He's on the run. He's on the edge of the Jordan River right now. He's got only his most loyal and valiant uh, fighters. His whole army is really with Absalom right now. He's got other loyal followers who are with him also. They're all weary. They're all exhausted. They're all hungry. They're thirsty. Uh, They don't know what is coming. They are discouraged and frightened. There are still a few in Jerusalem who are for David but more in an underground kind of way. The priests are all for David, but they don't really know what to do. A couple of the priests have sons who are running information back and forth to David to keep him appraised, apprised of the situation. Uh, they've got a man on the inside now, one of David's friends, who's going to sort of try to sabotage the plans of Absalom. 
which is good because Absalom's most trusted advisor right now used to be David's most trusted advisor, Ahithophel. And I don't know if we'll have time today, but uh, if you are going to the adult Sunday school, make sure you ask uh, Rich about the relationship of Ahithophel to David. It's, it's interesting to find out why Ahithophel was so willing to turn on David. But for now, let's just read what we have here in 2 Samuel chapter 17. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. And actually, I'm going to back up one verse just to give context to what's said at the beginning of 17. So this is the last verse of chapter 16. Now, in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring back all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he, is, if he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom 
and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimahaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go to them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom, So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim who had a well in his courtyard. And they went down into it, and the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan by daybreak. By daybreak, not one of them was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ethra, the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zariah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah, the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodibar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogelim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, The people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. So we see in this passage, in this chapter, again, God's designs for his kingdom. uh, That's why so many of the songs we sang today revolve around the kingdom of God here on earth. Now, in one sense, God is king regardless of how people feel about that. Uh, God is the sovereign creator, king of all that exists. And so, uh, but uh, there's always been a unique a uh, specific way that God's kingdom is manifested on earth. So in the Old Testament, the manifestation of God's kingdom, the presence of his reign, uh, came specifically through the nation of Israel, his, his chosen people. In the New Testament, that kingdom manifests itself on the earth through the church, God's chosen people. 
And so as we read about David, David is God's anointed king, anointed again in Hebrew is simply Mushiah or Messiah. And so David is the Messiah king of God's people. And so what we are reading about is a desire and plan uh, and uh, execution of uh, the the ousting of the rightful king, the anointed king of God's people. But throughout all of this passage, what we see is uh, are three things about God and his kingdom. We see God's sovereignty over his kingdom. We see God's providence uh, over his kingdom. And we see God's provision. So God's sovereignty, or if we want to... Uh, say it in a more clever way, you could say, uh, water in the Lord's hands. And, uh, and I'll explain that in a minute. So God's sovereignty or, or water in the Lord's hands. Uh, when we keep the end of chapter 16, that last verse in mind, it really, it really makes Absalom's decision that much more of a head scratcher, doesn't it? I mean, Ahithophel's Council was viewed as the counsel of God Himself. Why on earth did Absalom ask for more counsel? Ahithophel's counsel is not even seen, even without it being seen as God's counsel, it's really smart counsel. It's very, it, it's wise. It's good counsel, not good in the holy good, but. It's good for the situation that Absalom is in. He says, let me simply take a smaller group of trained men, 12,000. David's men and his followers are tired. They're discouraged. I will come and attack them tonight and set them in a panic. They will scatter. I will kill only David and I will bring everyone back. And without David, there will be no reason to deny that you are the rightful king. It all makes sense. In fact, everyone agreed. Absalom agreed. They all say, this is great advice. And yet, and yet, Absalom seems to remember Hushai, David's friend. Apparently, they still don't trust him because he's not in the council. He's not present. And so they have to send for him and bring him in. Is this a test? Is this a, well, let's see if he's worth keeping alive. Let's just make sure that he agrees with all of us. Let's hear what he has to say. Now, interestingly, Absalom tells Hushai Ahithophel's counsel. So all Hushai now has to do is poke holes in it. Really, wisdom would have been, why don't you share with us what you think we should do, Hushai? And then they could just wear, weigh them out. But Hushai now has the upper hand. The literal Hebrew ordering of Hushai's opening sentence is, no good, the counsel that is given by Ahithophel. And it's like he tags on, I mean, this time. You can almost, you know, you wonder if like swords were starting to be grabbed. He's like, I mean, I mean this time. This time. It's no good this time. Or maybe this is his plan. Hushai knows that David and his men are in trouble. 
At the very least, he needs to delay the attack, uh, if not deter the attack entirely. Now, Ahithophel is a statesman. He knows his job. His is to advise and then sit back. And so he gets to the point. It's brief. It's succinct. It's very straightforward. This is what we should do. Hushai is a plant. He knows his job. His job is to distract and sabotage. His speech is at least three times longer than Ahithophel's speech. See, while Ahithophel knows the affairs of the state, Hushai knows the affairs of the heart. And while Ahithophel can read a sit rep, Hushai can read the room. And so he plays on Absalom's ego, which, uh, if you've been here, that's not a small instrument. Uh, playing on Absalom's ego is a pretty easy thing to do. He's a pretty egotistical uh, megalomaniac. He starts out with you. You yourself know. You know. I don't even have to tell you these things, Absalom. You know. Your father and his men are mighty, and they are madder than a she-bear. By the way, your father is an expert in war. He's not with the people. Ahithophel's going to take these 12,000 men out there. You'll never find him. He has disappeared. He is, he is in a pit somewhere. He'll, you'll never find him. And then the battle's going to start, and it's going to be a battle between Israel and Israel. And so Israelites are going to be killed no matter what. And so then once Israelites are killed, then the rumors start flying. Absalom has brought us into a great slaughter. He says, you know that uh, you and all of Israel know that, that David is mighty and all of his men are valiant. This is what you need. You need shock and awe. You need to reinstitute the draft. What we need are not a small dedicated force. We need a force of power. You need all of the army, all of the military from Dan to Beersheba, the entire military of Israel. We need to show up and be done with this once and for all. And you need to lead them. You yourself at the front. Gather men and they will follow you. Who wouldn't want to go into battle behind you and your chariot? You won't even need a banner. Your beautiful locks of hair will be waving in the breeze behind you in and bringing out valor from all of the men everywhere. We won't just kill David. We will kill every single one of them. And it'll be over. You know, a couple of key pronouns that probably helped, at least with the brushing or the, the stroking of Absalom's ego. Ahithophel, he said, let me, and I will, I will, I will. Now, he's not thinking that he had to uh, brush Absalom's ego. He's simply giving him sound advice. But because of that, Hushai can say, you yourself, no. Have the people gathered to you. You go into battle in person. And then he switches it. It's like he's starting to like really ramp up this speech. He says, we shall. 
we shall come upon them and we shall wipe them all out and we shall, and we shall. You can hear, like by the end, like the men are pounding each other's shoulder pads and chest bumping with each other and smacking each other's helmets. And It's like he probably has like a Scottish accent. Half of his face is painted blue by this time and everyone's ready to go. Let's go kill them all. The thing is, though, Absalom's ego is not enough to explain this. Yes, Absalom has an ego. The entire council is swayed. The entire council hears the two plans and they're like, oh yeah, this Hushai's plan is better. To understand it all, it isn't just that Hushai uh, played his ego well. Verse 14 explains it to us. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Sometimes we struggle with the idea of the sovereignty of God. That God actually is in control. That he makes decisions and those decisions stand. Do you know that in the Bible, writers of scripture think that the sovereignty of God is not something that's supposed to be used uh, with, for, for angry philosophical or ethical debates. The sovereignty of God is actually meant to be a comfort to God's people. It actually is meant to elicit praise of God. When we are told about the sovereignty of God, it's actually supposed to cause us to erupt in doxology. That's what the point of Ephesians 1 is. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, if you take time this afternoon, you should read that. It's all one sentence in Greek, verses 3 to 14. And the whole point of it, it ends explaining to you all of this is supposed to produce in us praise for God's glory. It starts with doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us before the foundations of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, according to the purpose of his will. Later, it talks about making known the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, a plan for the fullness of time that he had. We have been predestined according to the purpose of him. And all of this for the praise of his glory. The sovereignty of God ought to cause us to praise God, not to debate over what exactly that means. Rather than seeing God's will and God's sovereignty as a negative smear on his character, can you see that what is being said is that God has not turned his back on David? Interesting, David doesn't get that verse. You and I get that verse. The readers get to be reminded of this. David isn't told this. He's in the midst of wondering what has gone on. What is going on? He is in the midst of wondering, perhaps... I do not find favor in the Lord anymore. And yet we are comforted with knowing that God is sovereign and God is in control. 
God is still for David. God is for David. Not in that rabid, impotent, half-crazed fan who thinks that wearing a number 12 jersey in his man cave is going to somehow have some impact on his team. I am for, that is not how God is for David. When I say God is for David, I mean that God is using his power and will on behalf of David. And you as God's children can know that God is for you. As Paul says, if God is for us, who could be against us? And all, he says in Romans 8, and all of Romans 1 through 8 is establishing just how much God is for you. God is for you, not not cheering impotently from the stands. He is using his power and will to care for you and provide for you. God is for you. God's sovereignty is on full display here. Water in the hands of the Lord. But we see God's sovereignty through God's providence. Or as we might call it, water under the rug. Hushai apparently can't, uh, he either can't wait in order to find out whose counsel Absalom's going to follow, or perhaps he was kicked out before he even learns. But he knows he can't delay. He's got to at least pass on to David. These are the two choices that Absalom is choosing from. They're both bad. You need to get moving. So he goes, he tells Abiathar and Zadok, the priests, they find a servant girl, a young female servant who is to take the information to their sons, uh, Ahimaaz and Jonathan. They are hiding right now south of the Kidron Valley. They're right on the border of Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes. Uh, Unfortunately, a supporter of Absalom sees these two men and puts two and two together. And so he runs to tell Absalom what's happening. And now they're in deep trouble. And so they flee. Now they're deep in Benjamin territory. Not only deep in Benjamin territory, they find themselves in the very town from which Shimei is from. That, uh, that rock-throwing, dust-throwing, curse-throwing uh, supporter of Saul, hater of David. They're in his hometown, in Benjamin, the, the tribe that Saul is from. How are they going to get through this? They find a house that happens to be a supporter of David. The house happens to have a well inside the courtyard. How odd is that in a place where wells are out for everyone? This house has a well in its courtyard. And the woman of the house is smart and cunning and and she knows what to do. You know, sometimes we can read this part of it and without my putting the emphasis the way I have, we could read it and say, where is God? I mean, they can't catch a break. It's all supposed to be done in secret, but then they're seen. Now they got to run. Now they're in Benjamin. Now they have no place to go. They got to hide. They got to... Fear for their lives. Where is God? Why is God so uninvolved? This October, I'm, uh, I'm going on a pastor's retreat. Uh, it was begun several years ago. It's sort of a national-ish thing. And uh, it exists purely uh, for providing some rest uh, to pastors. 
Uh, this one was going to be in Estes, Colorado. One of the first gatherings that happened uh, was in Arkansas, one of the first retreats. And one man shared recently on an email chain about that first gathering. Uh, he said, you know, a few years ago I went on the church planter retreat in Arkansas where we shot skeet and ate like kings for a week. On the first morning, I wandered into the kitchen and met an old woman from Liberia. Her name was Miss Fifi. While she cooked breakfast for a bunch of men, I sat on a stool and worked to crack open a few pecans that I had found on the walk. I said, Liberia, huh? How in the world did you end up in Arkansas? Her face lit up and she said, God is so good. She told me about a war in her country. Her father was killed during that war. She had traveled to the United States just days before the war began. I was thinking to myself, how terrible. And at the same time, she says, God is so good to me. She married an unbelieving man who divorced her because she couldn't have children. But then God provided her a new husband who deeply loves the Lord. And, and she asked me, why is God so good to me? They give up hope for children, and then unexpectedly, at the age of 42, she becomes pregnant. A few years later, God gives them a second healthy child. And she asked me again, why is God so good to me? They help start a church. The building they're meeting in was crumbling, and so they give their own house to be the church building. And at this point, she tells me, back then, I didn't like or trust white people. But then she's introduced to a white man who works with an organization that builds them a new home for free. And she asks again, why is God so good to me? Then she tells me that just three weeks before this conversation, her husband died. He was preparing a pastor appreciation event and had a heart attack. She said it was not surprising that he died while serving the Lord because he was always serving the Lord. And so she shared how stressed she was because of it was going to cost $7,000 to bury her husband. Only God leads the same man who helped build their home to pay for the entire funeral. And can you guess what she asked me next? Why is God so good to me? The whole conversation, I kept seeing ways that God had failed to love her and Miss Fifi kept pointing me to how wonderfully the Lord has loved her. Genuine, with genuine joy, she kept telling me, I says to the Lord, I don't know why you love this African woman so much. How do you view God's providences in your life? You know, these... These men are seen, but rather than pursue them, he decides to take, go and tattle to Absalom. Like he doesn't take action other than to go the opposite direction to talk to Absalom. It gives them time to escape. Of all the town, of all the, the homes, of all the houses they could have gone to, they found one that was a supporter of David. One that had a well in the courtyard of the house. 
and a woman who was smart enough to know what to do. Not that that's strange. I'm not saying that that's the strange part of it. I'm just saying that, like, the wife, I mean, it's intentional that, like, the wife knows what to do exactly. She's like, well, get in the well and, and let me hide and we'll take care of this. And, and it, they're taken care of. You know, we can look at our lives and say, look at how much I've had to go through. Or we can look at our lives and say, look at how much God has carried me through. I don't know why God loves this stupid white pastor the way he does. Isn't God so good? We see God's sovereignty, water in the hands of the Lord. We see God's providence, water under the rug. And we see God's provision. What are they doing here? Sorry, that's as as close as I could come. What are they doing here? Yes, we see God's sovereignty, and the way we understand God's sovereignty is when we watch God's providences unfold, and we realize, wow, look, God has been in control. And God's providences unfold through his provisions. He provides. We don't have time to hit on everything. I'm sure there's questions about Ahithophel. What on earth happened to him? It could be that when you... uh, Maybe he was believing his own press. Maybe he thought, I do speak for the Lord. And for the first time, someone disagreed with him, and so he couldn't handle it. His identity was in his position, and so he killed himself. It could be that he saw the writing on the wall. Maybe he knew there's no way this plan unfolds the way it ought to, and there's no way my life continues when David's back on the throne. And so he decides to take matters in his own hands. There's not much to say about Ahithophel's death. We get some geographic settings for the battle in the next chapter. David is in uh, Mahanaim, Absalom, and his men are in Gilead. And then we're told about this provision, God's provision for David. Beds and basins and earthen vessels, wheat and barley flour and parched grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese. All these things provided by the, maybe the three most unlikely sources. Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites. So remember Nahash of the Ammonites. Uh, early in Saul's reign, Nahash is like, yeah, I'll, I'll sign a treaty with you if I can cut off all of your hands and take your right eyes. Uh, not the greatest of neighbors. But then when David comes to reign, he has a treaty with Nahash. Nahash dies, and his first son, Hunan, starts the Ammonite-Israelite war. Remember, David sends men to condole condolences to Hunan about his dad's death, and he, like, shaves half their beards, he cuts their... Uh, anyway, he humiliates David's men and starts the Ammonite war. This is his brother, who, after the Ammonite war, is put on the throne. There's a new treaty now. This is Shobi, the son of Nahash. Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodibar. Lodibar was a town known to be Saul sympathizers. In fact, it's where Mephibosheth came. In fact, this is the man who cared for Mephibosheth when David sat on the throne. For years, he hid Mephibosheth, thinking that David would kill and wipe out all of Saul's offspring, because that's what new reigning dynasties do. Here's this supporter of Saul, and he's one of the three. 
And this man, Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rojalim. So minimally, he's coming from the place where Absalom is encamped. Is he a spy? Is he a plant? He seems a nice enough guy. And then we realize in a couple of chapters, he's 80 years old. This is the third supporter of David, this 80-year-old. Even by Moses' count, he is past his best-if-used-by date. So a former enemy, a former supporter of an enemy, and an elderly man who was probably wondering, why am I here again? But more than that, a quick-witted wife, a servant girl, older priests and younger men, all used by the sovereign God providentially to protect and to build his kingdom. All of them equal in the protection of God's kingdom because they're used by a sovereign God, all of them together just because they're children of God. In Colossians 3, here here there is no Jew or Greek. There is no circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no barbarian or Scythian or slave or free. Christ is all and is in all. In Galatians, listen, you were baptized into Christ. You've put on Christ. There's no Jew or Greek. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. You are all one in Christ. 1 Corinthians, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is building his kingdom. His, he is manifesting his kingdom here on earth now through his church, All of us are called to be a part of it. He is sovereignly and providentially over all of it. And each of us has the privilege of being his provision to build his kingdom, his outpost here in Stafford County. And it cannot fail. I mean, this outpost certainly can. We're not that egotistical. But his kingdom cannot fail. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for these reminders of your sovereignty and your providence and your uh, commitment to your word that you will have a kingdom on earth. We praise you and thank you for bringing us into your kingdom and pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see the ways that we would be part of your provision. That we would praise Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the Lord of hosts, his name. That we would advance your kingdom and sing your praises and the world would see and be amazed that former enemies would come to you. Supporters of enemies would come to you. Those who 
by the world's standards, by the world's count, are the weak, the useless, that we would come and be used in your kingdom for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.